This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. Welcome to Going in Circles. Today, we're going to talk to Rick Chosberg. Rick is a longtime, very, very respected New York trainer who also holds a seat on the board of the NYTHA, the New York Thoroughbred Horsemen's Association, which is the group that represents owners and trainers on the Naira circuit. Uh, Rick um, has been training for, for a number of years, I'm not calling him old or anything, but um, he's had some really, really good horses uh, over the years, really, you know, star quality, uh, including uh, Maria's mom, who was champion two-year-old cult. Um, and lately, he's really been concentrating on, uh, on working and helping the horsemen, and he has really taken over um, some of the responsibility that... Um, was left when we lost uh, Rick uh, Rick Violet. Uh, Rick Schausberg, however, has um, played a real key effort in um, finding places for our horses to go when they're they're done racing, and it's a it's a huge issue, and it's something that uh, Rick and the New York Board have have done a very very good job with. So we'll be right back to talk to Rick Schausberg. Okay, welcome back. We're here with trainer Rick Schausberg. Rick, thank you for uh, coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Chuck. It's always a privilege to, to get on and, uh, and and give some information and uh, about some of the initiatives we're working on up here in New York. Well, listen, uh, I'm, I'm glad to do it. You guys are doing a lot of important stuff. But before we get into that, let's talk about, about, uh, about Rick Schausberg. Um <laughs> I'll call you a long-time trainer, but that kind of makes you... Uh, I'm a long-time trainer. Sound a little old, but yes, you are. And uh, yeah. your your first year of training was um, was 1988, right? Yeah. Yeah, I uh, took out my, my own license in 1988. I worked for uh, Tom Skiffington for three years prior to that, and before that for uh, Hall of Fame trainer Sidney Waters. And, and then uh, I first started in New York under Walter Kelly, so uh, I had a very interesting upbringing uh, with regards to different training styles and different types of horses uh, that uh, that I got to uh, cut my teeth on, so they say. Yeah, I worked for uh, I worked for Tommy Skiffington for a couple of years too, and and you know people these days he's kind of forgotten his name, and and he was really the the first kind of uh, he he was um, the first turf kind of specialist you know tommy had had mostly turf horses when i was there and and now it, it seems uh it seems crazy but people forget that back in the 80s and in the 90s um the, even naira they would only run a couple turf races a day it's not like it is today where where more than half of the races are on the grass yeah well tommy had some great connections in europe you know he was he was a steeplechase rider uh early on in his career and he made a obviously made a lot of really good uh, networking connections 
and we would uh, we would get horses shipping in from France and uh, and and the UK and uh, you know, even Germany and and these horses were were really really uh, solid state horses um, or there were horses that were you know had, had shown potential early on and, and we got them to the states so that they could get through their allowance conditions and uh, and and prep themselves and gain confidence and go into stakes. Tommy's Tommy's one of the best horsemen I've ever been around. Um, he he learned under. Uh, Frank Whiteley, and uh, anybody who ever worked under Frank Whiteley knows what work is. Um, and if they had, if we had, if we had to be paid by the hour back then, <laughs> oh man, the grooms would have been making a whole lot more money than they were. But uh, you worked, you worked all day long there. It was, it was a lot like working on a farm, where basically there's a beginning and there's an end. It takes a long time to get there, but you're not done until you're done. And uh, you're not worried about you know punching out at, at uh, ten or eleven o'clock to, to try and save on on the payroll cost. It's a little bit different now, um, but boy, you worked hard, but you learned hard. And uh, Tommy and I still talk to him. Uh, we're, we're buddies on Facebook, and he's and he's uh, built himself a beautiful farm down in Florida, and, and uh, he's uh, he's always keeping an eye on, on some of the stuff that we're working on up here. And, uh, it was really spectacular working for him. I remember when we finished one, two, three in a grade one, and we're, and we're you know, we weren't what they call a a big outfit. I mean, we had twenty four horses at uh, at Belmont, and maybe ten or ten or twelve horses at Fair Hill, and that was it. You know, back back in those days, you had you topped out of either thirty six or forty four horses in New York, so it was much more competitive. In New York, when I when I first came out on my own, and, and uh, you know, at, at the peak of my career, I had about thirty, you know, between twenty five and thirty five horses, and but that was basically the, the max. And um, it's a whole different ballgame now because uh, you know the, the trainers can have you know hundreds of horses now and, and split up into different divisions within the same circuit. And uh, and it's uh, it's much tougher for the the fifteen to twenty five horse uh, stables to, to compete um, under those conditions. But um, you know, through my career, uh, you know, we've had some real good horses. You know, I've had one Eclipse Award winner, and we had a couple that were runners up. The firm success was was a runner up to the in the sprint, and Mossflower was runner up in the distaff division. Uh, in, in both in 1998, and then of course, you know, Maria's mom won the championship in uh, two-year-old championship in 1995. And we've had some good horses along the way, and uh, you know, I'd say right now we're we're, we're blue collar, but we're actually we're gaining a little bit of ground. We bought some nice two-year-olds at the sale, and I picked up some new clients, which is exciting. And I got some, you know, I've got five nice two-year-olds in the barn right now that I'm really excited about. And uh, it's it's just a matter of getting the older horses in competitive races, and it's no it's no different from any other Saratoga meet, man. If you think you got a solid twenty five, and you're running in a twenty five, and you see all the horses that would be running for fifty at Belmont in there, you realize that you know it's kind of an eye opener. You know, if you if you thought you had a solid twenty five horse, you better be running for sixteen, twelve, five. <laughs> Because the, the racing up here is tough, and the allowance races, you know, you don't have to say too much about 
just very, very, very tough to come up here and, uh, and, and win with a limited number of horses. But, you know, we keep plugging away and we'll, we'll hopefully get one or two out of here. But we'll see. Yeah. Um, going back, you trained a horse named, uh, that's, that's almost totally forgotten these days, a horse named As Indicated. How, he yes. was your first really good horse, right? As Indicated was my first grade one stake winner. Yeah, he was, um, we bought him actually as a two-year-old uh, out of Canada. Uh, he had, his birth was made, in, I think, at Greenwood. And he was, yeah, he was, uh, by, was it by Zarovich out of an hour Michael Mayer, I think, right? right? Right. So, yeah, and um, we, we brought him down to, uh, to Aqueduct, and he, he went through his conditions pretty quick and won a little stake. Um, we ended up kind of on the Derby Trail. He, he won a prep for the Gotham, then he won the Gotham. Um, and we ran him in the wood, I believe his fourth in the wood, came back with a little bit of a shin, which was unusual, but, uh, and we, uh, we stopped on him that year, and then we brought him back as a four-year-old, and he was real good then. I think he won four or five in a row at Aqueduct, and come, come spring and summer, he was probably the top root handicap horse in New York, at least, and maybe, you know, in the East Coast. And we took on one of your old buddy's horses, Alan Jerkins' horse, Devil is Due, in the Pimlico Special, grade one. And, uh, you know, we had one, four or five going on. We were second choice in there, and of course, Devil is Due was a heavy favorite. I think he was six to five. Maybe we were nine to five or two or something like that. And my horse was like a high-end cruiser. He'd get to the lead and just kind of gallop the rest of the field, you know, into submission. Um, so he was always placed forwardly and, and clear, and he stumbled badly out of the gate in the Pimlico Special. And I remember looking over at my owner, Mr. Benson, who was one of the nicest people in the world. I said, well, Lloyd, uh, you know, there goes another grade one down the drain. And we, they had only gone like 80 yards out of the gate. And I knew we, we had no chance Yeah. because he'd never, he'd never really had dirt in space. He was just kind of, you know, he's one of those horses that just can go 23 and change, 46 and change, 110. He just could keep, keep going. And uh, Robbie Davis was on him. And, and sure enough, he did the right thing. He just was patient, patient. He'd ridden the horse so many times. You know, and I talked to him about it all the time. He says, well, I was just, just back there just talking to him. He's like, don't worry about it, buddy. We got this. We're going to get get a little. We're going to pick him up, you know, inch by inch by inch by inch. And sure enough, turned it for home. He swung to the outside and uh, and ran down uh, devil is due in the last 70 yards. And, and we got the, we got the great one with him. And uh, it, it, it ended up really wrecking his career. He, he, had, he had torn a suspensory doing it. Right. And I gave him a year off, and I ran him one more time. I, I, it was almost a year to the day in a seven furlong allowance race, and he was second. He got beat ahead, and that thing heated up a little bit on him. So I said, that, that, "That's your career right there." He made eight hundred something thousand dollars, and uh, he and my very first horse, Free Chop Road, who I trained back in nineteen eighty eight, um, were really my lead into uh, off-track thoroughbreds and I bought a little place on Long Island just so I could retire those two guys and um, we still 
the place down there and um, I had those two in my basically in my backyard for eight years and we did some hunt trials with them and we did some trail riding and we did uh, a bunch of stuff with them with a friend of ours Loretta who was taking uh, Loretta Bernhardt who was taking great care of course she was galloping horses with her husband and uh, she'd come out and help me out we'd go out on trail rides and enjoy it and uh, then we ended up when I, when I when I got to the point where I couldn't take care of horses at home because my stable had gotten so big, uh, we sent them to Green Hill Therapy in Lexington. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, 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 Jimmy Jerkins' wife, Shirley, was running the Green Hill Therapy at the time, and they were doing uh, therapy work with, uh, with military veterans with PTSD and kids with, uh, with emotional and physical disabilities and things like that. And those two went and did that for a few years before they, uh, before they passed on. But, uh, it, it kind of, it, it, it kind of opened, uh, the door up for me to really realize what a, what an off-track thoroughbred could do. And, uh, so when, fast forward to when I got onto the night, the board and Rick Violet and Andy Belfiore, the executive director, were just putting the take two and take the lead initiative together uh, on white paper and I had just come on the board and Rick said hey this, this looks like a perfect fit to you what do you think and I said that's absolutely perfect I, I'll, I'll, I would love to um, I, I would love to help you out with uh, you know with working on this initiative moving forward and uh, basically, I said anything but workman's comp. You know, I'll do anything. Just don't be workman's comp. <laughs> and because uh, that's what it is. I mean, really, Rick, Rick you know, and Joe, Joe Applebaum, who, who's, who's our president, uh, president, will tell you, workman's comp takes up so much of your time as the, the president of the New York Third Horseman's Association, just because it's such a complicated cost. Uh, Cost initiative uh, to the trainers and the owners, um, and and he had to really really knuckle down because we got to do everything through the legislature up here in New York. And and uh, when he handed the take the leave and the take two program off to me and, and let me, Andy and I work with it, and it's developed into a, a, a state of the art uh, facilitating organization. And we've uh, we've reached milestones just about every year. Uh, we're, we've retired over 600. We're probably heading toward 650 horses uh, since since we started the initiative in 2013. Last year we retired 135 horses, which was a 30 about a 34 35 percent increase over the year before. Um, and and the way that the lead program works is you know. The, the it, it, what we do is we take the onus off the horsemen to have to do the the, the logistical nuisance work of trying to find a home a proper home uh, for retiring racehorses so that they could have the chance to have a second career so um, basically it's just a phone call an email or, or a text to either me or to Andy um and we get the uh, we get the process started. Um, we work with TAA accredited uh, organizations and facilities in the region or out of the region. 
Um, I'm also on the TAA board and I'm on the accreditation committee, so I've gotten to know how important it is to get that accreditation as an organization in aftercare in the United States. We have just, we started out when I first came on, it was, there were 24 organizations. Now there's between 75 and 80. I think we're going to probably get close to 80 or over 80 organizations uh, by year's end that are accredited by the PAA. So what we'll do is take the lead, we'll gather all the information, all the medical records on these horses, and of course all the, the ownership information, do a, do a comprehensive veterinarian exam, and gather all that, put it into an electronic profile, and then I will check on our uh, our partners, whether it be new locations, whether it be Rerun, whether it be Aikendale, whether it be DRF. Uh, for availability for a horse that has this specific profile, depending on how much rehabilitation they need prior to retraining, and uh, and then they'll tell me, you know, we can, we can take that horse at this facility on this date, and then we'll go ahead and, and make the, uh, the, the transportation arrangements, and we pay for all that. We'll pay for all the transportation. We make a monetary donation with every single horse through our funding. We ask for donations from the uh, from the present uh, uh, owners uh, and the trainers, and I would say more often than not, they'll they'll, they'll send um, a, a thousand, a couple of thousand dollars to help with the rehabilitation, and we will also send uh, that pound or more, depending on how much work will probably need to be done before that horse gets to be in a retraining position, and then eventually rehoming. And um, then there's the, the take two program is is a hunter and jumper uh, class program, uh, which is the second initiative of the uh, of, of the night uh, the take two take the lead program. And what that is is that that creates demand for off track therapists, and that's what we need to keep up. We have the RRP, we have hit, we have uh, other horses that are strictly. Uh, thoroughbreds and there's thoroughbred classes like take two. So we found that that the demand for thoroughbreds because they're so athletic um, has started to come back again. The warm bloods kind of took over the European warm bloods kind of took over the show circuit for a while. But once these thoroughbreds went out there and started showing their athleticism and and downplayed the we, what I thought was an unjustified pre-existing notion that they were all flighty and, and silly and take a whole lot, lot longer to train to do this, which is, which is just debunked by uh, by the evidence of how, how uh, successful they were in the show ring, both in the hunter division, the jumper division, dressage, uh, cross country, eventing, uh, even barrel racing, things like that, where you think the quarter horses, uh, obviously they, they're a little bit lower and a little more stout, um, but man, thoroughbreds can really cut pretty well when you're on athletic thoroughbreds. So, as I said, we, we, we get calls, I would say on, uh, on a weekly basis, I get four or five calls. Um, and then we, we have horses in the process of being evaluated, um, waiting for transportation, or they're on their way to a facility. Uh, any given day, 
all three of those uh, activities are being done at Belmont, Saratoga. Black uh, Rock's not open now, but there are there are were certain times of the year where we had all three tracks open. So it's it's a, you know it's a bit of a hustle, but you want to you know we got to put the effort in, and we're doing it's a good initiative. And uh, you know if if you're you're tech savvy, um, a lot of this can be done with a smartphone or or a Mac, uh, something like uh, something like that, where you can collate all the information. Um, also take videos and pictures, and have all that sent in now time. And then have them, you know, evaluate what you sent them, and then they come back to uh, to you with with where that horse fits best, and, uh, and you just just keep moving forward. So it sounds like a lot of work, and and it, it does take time, but it's it's an incredible uh, it's an incredible uh, structure. And the main thing is is that you have a network of people that know that the cooperation amongst themselves really moves the ball down the field easier. And, um, you know, they're all trying to do the right thing. The trainers have now completely bought into it. Um, they know that we're going to do the right thing for the horse. They never have to worry about the horse ending up in a bad situation because of the TAA uh, high standards. Uh, and, and so that they know when we take the horse, take possession of the horse for for uh, for an organization, um, they know that that horse is going to be as safe as possible and does not end up in a place where we'll have to go back and get them again. You know, the, the accreditation program is so important because there's a lot of really well-meaning people out there that that want to. Um, they want to take care of horses, they want to help, but it seems like for whatever reason, horses kind of um, mesmerize people into, th they're not dogs, you know, they take a lot of care, they're, they're, it costs a lot of money to feed them, uh, you have to bedding, hay, um, it, God forbid they, they get sick, they colic or something. And uh, that, that's why it's so important to go to places like that. I, I know I had an experience um, with a, a filly that we retired. This was years ago. And we found a great home. Um, young girl, 14 years old. She just fell in love with the horse. And she, she retrained the horse. And uh, I, I believe she, was, she might have been doing barrels. I, I can't remember what she was doing, but... Whatever she was doing, she was getting, uh, she was having a lot of success because there was always pictures with ribbons, you know. So you kind of forget about the horse, right? You figure, well, this horse is in great shape. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, about six years later, I get a phone call, and it was a dark day, Tuesday afternoon, Monday afternoon, Tuesday afternoon. Hey, I, I just wanted to let you know, one of uh, a horse that made its last start for you is at New Holland. And I was like, oh, "What's the name horse? You know, what's the name of the horse?" And they told me, "I said that that, that can't be. It's impossible. <laughs> There's no way." I mean, this girl like loved this horse, and no, this is the horse. It's the tattoo, and they they sent me a picture of it and everything. I was like, "Holy crap! I can't believe what happened." And, and come to find out, the girl had won off to college, and you know, five six years later, their, her life's priorities changed. And she went away, and, and the, the mom and dad wound up taking care of the horse, and they didn't want a horse. 
and someone came along and made it a you know someone who looked apart who drove a tr- nice truck and it was a it was a it was a teen it was a woman and a, and a man and you know they they were looking for horses and they were going to give them great homes and you know blah 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 and they would take it for nothing you know they're not going to you know and, and um they were scam artists and these people you know gave the horse to them they thought they were doing the right thing and then a couple of days later the horse winds up in the auction because they were just you know preying on people's um you know emotions and lack of knowledge and of course we got the horse out of there but it just goes to show you that that um horses live long lives now and especially when when they're retired relatively young uh they, they might have 20 25 more years to go it's not like uh exactly right you know and that's that's the one thing whenever i do a seminar and after class you got to realize that when we're taking care of these horses on the racetrack that's a, if you're lucky 25 percent of their life so it's like if they run to five they'll live to 25 yeah so What aftercare is is covering sixty to seventy-five percent of this horse's life. So, what's the main? What's the main problem with not the main problem? What's your main? What's your main initiative for aftercare besides taking great care of the horses and helping welfare? It's funding. It's funding, funding, funding. Okay, if somebody gives a two thousand dollar donation for a horse, right? That's wonderful. What if it took a year to rehab that horse? Mm-hmm. Okay, or what? If, or maybe more. So it, we've come up with a new funding mechanism in New York, and I think everybody was aware of it. Where one and a half percent of each claim goes to aftercare. Now it gets split up between our program and the TAA. All right, because the TAA does all the grants, and uh, they should be they should be able to grant ten million dollars a year for aftercare. That's and I think that's a minimum. We're not there yet, We're, but but I think I think there's ways to get there. This pandemic kind of slowed the whole process down, like it slowed everything else down. But what we did here in New York last year generated. We went from take the lead take the lead budget was about 150 to to 200 thousand, and with the claiming assessment with 60% going to take the lead and 40% going to the TAA, right? Mm-hmm. And then other other funding mechanisms for us, we, we basically, in New York, New York sets aside a million dollars for aftercare. That's a serious chunk of money. We're, we're the biggest jurisdiction, we have the biggest purses, we have most horses, yada, yada, yada. We should be taking the lead, going to phrase, on aftercare. But the fact that we we can come up with an innovative way so that the industry pays for itself, okay, it pays for aftercare. And if other jurisdictions can buy in, it doesn't have to be at that level. I mean, we we, we have $25 million of horses claimed a year. So that's a big chunk of change. So, but if, if other jurisdictions can come up with some kind of mechanism to generate that kind of money, then you're going to see less problems like what you saw. And with regard to your situation, is it's it's not unique. And we frequently get calls about 10, 12, 13, 14 year old horses in situations like that before our program and before the TAA was was up and running. So 
you're getting a lot of horses that got lost along the way. They were old broodmares or whatever, and then they get in a situation, and we still pull those horses out, get them into quarantine, try and find homes for them, call the original breeders and things like that. Um, but the TAA's initiative, the accreditation process is such that the adopters are screened uh, it's it's a it's a, it's a super high standard screening process with regards to adopters. They go, they do site examinations, uh, they do fiscal examinations, and they do extensive interviews with these people. And they want references, references, references. And also, there's a lifetime return policy. So any horse, doesn't matter how long they've been out there. And they end up with a financial problem, which frequently occurs, especially now under these conditions. You know, I, I adopted this horse seven years ago, and I'm flat broke. Call the organization that you adopted the horse from. They are required to go get that horse and bring it back to the facility. All right? So we've covered every base to try and keep those horses from slipping through the cracks. And and it's it has worked. Like I said, sometimes we get the older horses that have been out there for a long time, school horses and things like that. We just rescued, honestly, we just rescued a 19-year-old mare out of uh, out of a pen in Kansas that was uh, had New York connections. And they call me if it's a New York connection. If it's, you know, we'll call the breeders or whatever, we'll set up a fund, we'll get money down there, and the hardest part is finding a, uh, is finding a destination. Right. Um, we can handle the funding, we can handle the transportation, we can handle the quarantine. You have 30 days of quarantine mandatory, so you actually have 30 days to find a final destination for this horse, so you got a little bit of time there. But the hardest thing is, you know, finding a, finding a rescue facility that's suitable for an 18, 9-year-old, 18, 19-year-old horse that's probably just paddock sound, um, but, you know, but not a euthanasia candidate. So, and they're, they're difficult to find, but there are people out there, and there's a good network of people keeping us informed. Like I said, Texas, in the last three months, we've had we've had calls from older horses that were end up in, in Texas, close to the border, this Kansas call came at midnight one night, and uh, we managed to work it out and get the you know get the proper funding there to get that horse out of harm's way. And they found a rescue organization, and there was some vet work that needed to be done, so we handled the we handled that. Um, but it, the horses that are going through our programs or similar programs at other racing jurisdictions I think we've done we've done a really good job to prevent horses from slipping through the cracks um, and I, I don't want to say it's 100% but I want to say that we've never had to take a lead horse in 650 whatever it is uh, number of horses that have gone through the program we've never had to pull to, we've never found one in harm's way because we make sure that not only do we follow up with the organizations where the horse goes, they either have them on the grounds or they do constant follow-ups. When they adopt a horse out, they are constantly rechecking on those horses, making sure that everything's everything is, uh, is as it was when the horse left. And if it's not, 
then they're they're required to bring the horse back, and, uh, and they do that occasionally. But uh, it, the, the the main the main factor with aftercare, uh, I think, is 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 the funding because, like you said, they're not dogs. Right? They, they, it, it costs money to keep horses, and as much of of a uh, utopian vision you have. Oh, I want a backyard full of horses. I'll try it sometimes. It ain't all a scratch. It's a lot of work. You know, three horses can eat three acres of grass in like a month, and then you got no grass. And you got to go to hay if you can't if, if you can't change your you know uh, alternate your fields and stuff like that. If you got a small place, they you got a mud hole with hay, right? So you got to realize going in that it's it's a lot of work having having horses, and uh, it, it it takes it takes time, effort, and money, and you got to think long and hard. And you got to have uh, you either have good advisors, or you've been there before, and you know that you take it on because you can end up in a situation where you know you either have too many horses or you have too little time, and and that's that's why the TAA is so important that uh, they they have this policy of, uh, of constant uh, checkups and and, and uh, mandatory lifetime return policy. It's, it's, it's just you know, without saying. It's, that's the gold standard. Yeah, no doubt. I, I think it's important to to educate trainers and owners because people forget too that a lot of times you're a trainer of a horse, the owners they'll call the shots in some in, in, in a lot of cases. And I'm not advocating that anybody is racing horses that shouldn't be racing. That it, it doesn't matter what the owner wants to do. But I, I have a friend and, and she rehomes a tremendous amount of horses. And and the biggest complaint is that. So many of these horses, that last race, they end up pulling up, and then, you know, to look at the horse, this horse shouldn't have been in the race. And I think that's the one thing that we have to educate uh, owners on especially, not just trainers, because the trainers know. And owners aren't with the horses every day, and owners aren't, aren't, aren't there to, to see when that ankle is really starting to become a, uh, an issue that's not going to go away. And, and so many of these horses... It's so much easier, and I'm sure you realize, I'm sure you know, yeah. that it's so much easier to rehome a sound horse or a relatively sound horse, a horse that doesn't have a lot of issues and maybe needs a month off, uh, yes. as opposed to one that's got a blown suspensory and it's going to be forever or it's got a, a, a really bad tendon or, or you know, a broken bone or something like that. And that, that last race, let, let's squeeze one more race out of it, that, that yeah. is so much better. Because number one, it almost never works, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like when you when you're kind of wounding down on a horse and the horse isn't competitive anymore, just throwing him back in one more time, like it, it no. just it works like one out of two hundred. So it doesn't work. Yeah, anyways. and you're always and you're always you're causing detrimental damage to, to the horse. What we've done is in our continuing education program here, when we do our aftercare uh, seminars and we do them here at Saratoga, uh, we did it. Uh, several last year at Saratoga and the year before this year obviously under the conditions we only do uh, electronic but well, our, our our motto is always call me one race early and I'm almost ready to say please call me two races early alright because economically I'll get, I will move your horse off into a, into a safe 
situation within a week. Okay, you're going to want to keep if you're going to run that horse again, you're going to keep it for a month at 110, 120 a day and probably not hit the board. Okay, and probably do damage to your horse. So even if you go, if, if you if you use dollars and cents, um, and, and if and if you know pulling at their heartstrings doesn't always get the job done, pull at their purse strings a little bit and say, hey, look, not only are you doing the right thing for the horse, you're doing the right thing, the right thing for yourself physically and financially also. So we always try and we try and reiterate that. And anybody anybody that gets a license in New York has to watch our aftercare video first, and they and they have to prove that they watched it. And a lot of that has to do with all of us and the veterinarians. And I'm going to get to that too because you were talking about you know sometimes the owners make the decisions, and we as trainers uh, we have to step up and say, hey, that's not the right the right thing to do. But anyway, so, so when, when they watch that video, really it tells them, hey, look, you're owning the horse for life, okay? When you when you purchase a racehorse, you're not just purchasing the racehorse for a racing career. You're purchasing you're purchasing a living, breathing asset, okay? So you're you're responsible for the health and well-being of that horse from day one till 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 the end. In some way, you may not still own the horse, but you're responsible for making sure that that horse is tended to properly, and that means doing the right thing under under various amounts of circumstances. But getting back to what you were saying is about the responsibility. Um, we also up here in New York have have a new uh, a, a new initiative, and we work very close. State vets and um, and the gaming commission uh, uh, medical uh, medical director Dr. Palmer um, with regards to um, seeing that horses uh, are are definitely viable for that race and we've gotten much tougher standards uh, in the vet in the uh, the betting of horses on race day. And not only that, uh, increased in, increased number of people out there watching horses train and keeping uh, keeping tabs up on horses that aren't traveling. So I think we're doing everything. Everything's going in the right direction. Um, there's always more work to be done, but just like anything else, if you have all the organizations working in lockstep. Um, you're going to do a whole lot better than if you're banging heads against each other. And we realize that you have to fill races, um, but you don't want to fill races with horses that are that are not uh, in, in proper condition to run. And everybody, you know, everybody knows that. So we we, we as trainers have the responsibility. The owners have to learn the responsibility, um, and certainly the uh, the veterinarians, both the private practice vets. And, and the vets that are working for the association. We gotta put health and welfare first. And in the long run, you're gonna have a better product because you're gonna have less, less horses that are finishing far back um, and, maybe, and maybe being pulled up in distress. So increase, increase the uh, standards uh, of, of examinations that we're doing, um, come up with new ways to uh, to, to uh, try and, and investigate pre-existing conditions, uh, whether it be PET scan, MRI, 
um, that kind of thing. We're working on an initiative early on in, in February um, with, with with the Cornell Ruffian Group uh, and the Horsemen and Naira. And then when the pandemic hit, that whole thing got kind of put put got shelved because we couldn't work. Uh, we couldn't keep working together and, and trying to get something, you know, other than an electronic uh, plan down. Um, but I think we're going to move forward on that as soon as things calm down in the, in the, in the country where we can maybe get a baseline on horses um, across the board and uh, come up with any uh, pre-existing markers uh, where you can, you can prevent an injury by backing off for a matter of weeks instead of having the injury happen and then be either put on the shelf or put on the operating table. So I think, you know, there's a lot of good things going on. Um, it's a, it's a challenge, but if it wasn't a challenge, it wouldn't be worth doing. So, you know, people, people gotta, uh, people gotta realize that we're out there to do good and we're, we're doing everything we can to, to keep this as safe and, uh, and also a, uh, uh, a sport that can keep, uh, that can keep itself, uh, moving forward and, uh, and, and have a better product uh, for, for the future. Well, Rick, you are, are certainly doing more than your part. I, I know you received an award the other day. What, what did you get, a, 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 a golden face shield or something? Well, no, no it, was, it, was, it was a bronze, it was a bronze uh, face mask, yes. <laughs> but but uh, to, to be honest with you, 100%, that was, that was a team effort. And, and like I, I, I said before, with regards to organizations and people working in lockstep under conditions where we have to, you know, we have no choice but to do the right thing. And uh, between the, the Gaming Commission, the Department of Health, uh, the New York Racing Association, the New York Horsemen's Association, um, and the chaplain's office, the best team, you know, all this, all this was daily uh, phone calls, and uh, we mapped out distribution, um, distribution patterns in, in the, on the racetrack. We were making constantly ordering PPE through NYTHA and Naira, and it, you know it was just great to see the organizations working together. Um, and and uh, moving forward and making sure that everybody had the uh, the equipment that they needed to keep themselves safe and and the numbers uh, definitely uh, justify the effort because we we were prepared for hundreds of uh, of COVID positives uh, just just due to the conditions uh, the living conditions on the backstretch where people are are living very close in the same rooms and working close uh, proximity to each other. But um, we got on it very early and um, obviously, you know, with, with, the, with, with the results that we were constantly, and we were constantly getting updates from our executive director, Will, um, every night on, on how many uh, positives we had and how many were, uh, were cleared through uh, through the quarantine and back into the workforce, and it was just an incredible effort. And yeah, I appreciate I appreciate that 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 I got recognition, but believe me, it was a team effort uh, from from the beginning. And there, as far as I know, it's not going to end because this thing's still 
you know still around and if we uh if we take our foot off the accelerator we got to be we got to expect that, that that you know with the possibility of it, it you know rearing its ugly head again so but that was it, it's like i said it was it was it was an honor but uh there, there's a whole lot of people out there that deserve recognition so i will uh it uh, I'll accept it on their behalf, but uh, there was a whole there's a whole lot of people out there working really hard to keep this place safe. Well, I know that you've been on the front lines, and we, we taped this on a Monday today. And today's news of the day, COVID related, is that um, Churchill is going to require jockeys to do a 10 day quarantine in Louisville if they want to ride the Derby. So. There's sound. It sounds like the last uh, week and a half of Saratoga. There's going to be some prime mounts available for the uh, for the B level guys up there. At that. Well, let's let them rock and roll, baby. Yeah. Those horses. Those horses run just as fast for for those jocks, and those jocks need to, you know, they need to put food on the table too, and uh, and uh, we'll be right there. Putting on whoever has the most, uh, who's available and has the most enthusiasm and wants to go out there and win some races because we could use a few. We could use a few wins. Let me tell you. Uh, I hear you, man. <laughs> winning. So that, listen, hitting the board is nice. Getting checks is nice, yeah. but winning's the name of the game. Yeah, and you know, you and I remember when it, when winning seemed to be a habit. Yeah, now it's like <laughs> when, when, when we when my group when my group celebrates a third place finish like we won a great one, the game is totally changed. It's on its ear. But uh, anyway, I love the enthusiasm. My, my, the group that I train for now are. Uh, our Clear Stars group, they're the most enthusiastic people. We, we bought a Philly, in, we bought the last Philly on the first day of, down at Timonium because we really, really liked her. We really liked We wanted her. We got her at a price that we thought we could afford. And they were high-fiving and, and doing everything uh, as if they had just won the, the Alabama with this Philly. So that's the kind of group that we train for now. So we're, we're thrilled and uh, we're all good friends. And, it, you know, it's a bunch of people put a couple thousand bucks together to you know to be part of the racing game and uh, it's a joy to be part of that team enthusiasm is a great thing and I, and I tell you what as someone who's waited for the last horse in a sale it's all it's always good when you get one because man you feel yeah. <laughs> it's it sucks to wait for hours and hours and hours to bid on a horse and now they go right by <laughs> that happened to yeah. me more than once yeah, then you gotta then you gotta do your homework again, and then you gotta go the whole next day wishing you could actually like lock lock things up and hit the highway and get home. I know. I'm telling you, people. I tell people of sales. I said, listen, it all looks easy in, in in hindsight, but when you're there and you gotta list the horses and you like this one a little more and this one, but I don't know if I can afford this one and, and this one sells. You know, the one you really like sells after the other one. So should I pass it? You know, bird in the hand. It, it's uh, especially when when you don't have you know that. Uh, that uh, Coolmore budget, you know, where you can just uh, <laughs> circle the ones you want and get them, you well, know? <laughs> believe me. And we were juggling the whole time. And uh, I actually got lucky because we really, really liked the Colt that was a, was a non-sale. Mm -hmm. he, was, he was bought back. And then we waited on this filly, um, and we got her. So we couldn't buy the Colt. 
So then I started scrambling because I really liked that cult. So then I'm putting a whole new group of people together, including myself, which I don't have any money left. And uh, and we had the breeders stay in and the consigners stayed in. And I, now I'm building like 20 people at 2.5%. <laughs> and my bookkeeper wants, yeah. wants to bring me up. Hey, <laughs> listen. We got the cult and he, and he actually worked. Uh, he worked a nice, nice three guys out of the gate the other day. So, you know, maybe we got one. All he has to do is go out there and run big first time, and it'll all be worth it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, man. I got some horses to see. Rick, I appreciate your time. It was it was great. And, uh, all right, Chuck. See you later. Thank you. Okay, my friend. Talk to you soon. Good luck to you. Bye. That was Rick Schausberg calling from Saratoga, uh, a place that um, we all would like to be this time of year. Though it's uh, certainly a different uh, circumstance. Anyways, today's show um, is uh, over. We don't have any other guests because I think you're probably sick of hearing us talk after 45 minutes. But um, Rick is a really good guy and he's a a humble guy and he's a good trainer. And um, I I was working for Alan Jerkins when uh, we had a horse named Kelly Kip and we squared off with with the firm success a number of times and Kelly Kip was a little bit faster than a firm success was going three quarters of a mile he had his number but a firm success could go he could go seven eighths he could go a mile and, and he could run on the turf too I mean he was a really good horse and uh, and Rick's, a, Rick's a, not only a good trainer Rick's a really good guy and he, and he spends a lot of time and I know he acted humble but uh, he spends a lot of time and a lot of effort to uh, Helping out the horsemen and, and the horses and the and the the people of, of uh, in racing in New York and uh, it's uh, well appreciated. And he's very very well respected. Anyways, that's all we have for today. I still have not come up with a closing line, so we will just close by saying we will see you later. <laughs>